Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. about as a church is how the Bible reveals Jesus to us. A lot of people take the Bible and they believe that the Bible is like an instruction manual for life. And they read it and they try and do what it says, which is a noble attempt. But if you're doing it in your own strength, if you're not meeting the power of Jesus in the Scriptures and, and seeing the power and the ability of God through the Scriptures, then you will find yourselves failing to try and keep what the Bible says. And so our focus here at, at, at Anchor Church is to go through the Scriptures so that we can help reveal Jesus and His power and His ability to you um, through what the Bible says. And so every year we pick a book in the Bible and we work through it and we go into the Scriptures. And you know what's, what's tough about that sometimes is you can't skip the, the difficult parts and just read the nice parts. How many of you have opened up a book of the Bible and gone like, you know what, that, I'm not feeling that one today. I'm going to find another word from Jesus for today. But we're committed to understanding the Scriptures and we can do it because we know God's heart and we know what He says to us and we know what the gospel is. And so we're absolutely passionate about how the Bible and how the Word of God reveals Jesus to us. And so the book of Revelation is really a tough one. If you were here last week, it's a tough one to unpack. And it's always difficult to try and unpack it in 30 or 35 minutes here on a Sunday morning. It's something that really could be a very in-depth Bible study or, or even Bible college course. And it's one that people shy away from, particularly, I know a lot of pastors that if you even mentioned, would you do a series on Revelation? They would say, no ways I'm ever going into that territory um, because it's a lot to unpack. And, and people shy away from it because the prophetic language used in the book of Revelation is often quite difficult to understand. How many of you have attempted it before on your own? You kind of like opened it up, you got to the part where the dragon starts eating stuff and there's like angels with swords and all kinds of things happening. You're like, you know what, I'm going to come back when I'm a more mature Christian to this specific book because it has a lot of prophetic language that's often difficult to interpret and can be downright scary to read. And it's, it, it's often so because the vision that God gave to John here in the book of Revelation um, shows the, the final judgment and renewal of all things. Things have continued, and there is evil in our world, and there is brokenness in our world, and there is sin in our world, and there are demonic forces in our world, and we keep saying, but God, when are you going to do something about it? And, and the scripture in the book of Matthew actually tells us about how Jesus tells the parable about how there are weeds that come up along with the wheat. And you could go and, and try and pull out the weeds, but if you pull out the weeds, you'll pull out the wheat along with it. And so there's this tension between good and evil, the forces of evil and, and, and the heart of God and righteousness in our world that exists. We feel the pain of it. We feel the conflict. We feel the struggle. And God says, in the midst of that, I want you to preach the good news of my love. I'm giving people, even the weeds, the opportunity to recognize the truth of my love and what I've done for them and to turn to me. But there will come a time when it's harvest time. There will come a time where, where the, that judgment and that justice does arrive. And that's what we see, the renewal of all things. And in this, as we see it happening in the book of Revelation, um, the power of God is revealed. We see the power of God here in the book of Revelation. And, 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 and for us, it's, it's a difficult thing to even try and comprehend what the power of God looks like. 
We're so finite, and God's power is infinite. He's, he's omnipotent. And so instead, we kind of minimize it in our hearts and in our minds. We take the power of God, and we turn it into that little shiver that you feel during worship. Ooh, I just, I got goosebumps. Jesus is so powerful. I don't know why I'll be doing that, but I think people do that in worship when they feel Jesus. We turn it into a, a quote that we post online or, or something just very normal. And as a result of that, when it comes to those moments in our lives where we know that we are out of our depth, where we know we're struggling, where we know it's a difficult moment, where we know things are hard, we don't rely on that power. When you minimize the power of God, and then you come to a moment where you need the power of God, you don't know if you can trust it. And so, as scary as it might be to look full face through the book of Revelation at what God's power looks like, we need to know that power. We need to be acquainted with that power, because ultimately we need to trust in that power. Do you believe, church, that God is powerful, that He is able, that He can work on your behalf, that He can change the situation in a moment? Because if you don't trust that, you won't find the faith that you need in that moment. When it comes to God, an absolute belief in His power and in His love, because some people believe He has the power but not the will. He doesn't have the love to help even though He could. And that's why both of those are so essential. We need to know the love and the power of God. And as we realize it, it changes the way we trust in Him. And so this vision of revelation has the ability to awaken a sense of awe within us, not just a religious idea, not just the little Jesus meek and mild carrying a lamb through the fields, but the all-powerful God who is the creator of all things and the redeemer of all things. And so we realize this power. We saw in Revelation 6, I'm just going to quickly read the, how we ended Revelation 6 last week. But Revelation 6.14 speaks about the seals that the Lamb of God, the only one worthy to break the seals and open the scroll is Jesus himself. He's the only one who has the proper authority and through his sacrifice on the cross is now able to break the seals and unleash the redemption plan of God, the redemptive plan of God on the earth and, and to bring and to usher in the end of all things and the renewal of all things. And so he, the lamb sits on the throne, and as he breaks each seal, there is a birth pain or a tremor or a shaking that comes that shakes what people have trusted in and says, if you've trusted in riches, I'm shaking the economy. If you've trusted in human power or, or, or ability, I'm shaking that. If you've trusted in the natural order of things remaining the same, I'm going to shake all things until you realize there's only one rock that you can stand on, and it's the rock of Christ. And so he begins to shake all these things, and when the, the sixth seal is broken, the final one we looked at last week in uh, Revelation 6.14, this is what happens. It says, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Can you imagine what that would have sounded like? Can you imagine just what it would sound like if mountains begin to melt like wax? 
and every island shifts from its place, and the sky gets rolled up like a scroll, and stars begin to fall out of the heaven. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be on this earth at that time? And what it says is that, and I love how the scripture puts this, it says the kings and the great ones and the rich and the powerful, they find themselves in caves, because there is a contrast here that the vision is drawing for us between earthly power and the arrogance of the human heart versus the true power of God. We are so quick to trust in earthly power. And there's an image in the scriptures in the book of Isaiah that has always stuck with me, but it speaks about leaning on a reed. Those who trust in Egypt, in the worldly system, are like those who lean on a reed. The reed will break and pierce their hands, is what it says. If you're putting your trust in your own power, in your own ability, in your own bank account, you're leaning on something that is going to break. And so all those that were so arrogant, I am a great one, I am a king, I have all the power, I have all the influence, I have all the wealth, in a moment, those that have trusted in human strength will find themselves in caves. And the, the question, rhetorical question that is raised here at the end of Revelation 6 is, in the face of God's power, who can stand? Who can stand? Have you ever heard people say, you know, when I stand in front of God one day, I'm going to tell him this and this and this. Maybe you've said that. And I've got news for you. You're not going to be able to stand in the presence of God. If, you could, if, if words could come out of your mouth in that moment, I'd be impressed. We're going to stand before the great king, and in that moment, we're going to be overwhelmed by his majesty. We won't be offering arguments at that time, I can promise you. And so who can stand? Who can stand before the power and the majesty of God? And the rhetorical answer to that question is obviously no one. No one can stand before God except what we see in Revelation 7. And this is where the hope of the church and the hope of, of us as believers comes in. In Revelation 7 verse 1, we go into the next part of this vision that John has. And it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. This amazing vision. Do not bring the harm. Do not bring it until the servants of God have been sealed. I'm going to pray for us real quick this morning, and then we're going to get into Revelation 7, and we're going to see the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just thank you this morning that we have this opportunity, Lord, to behold your power. Through the Scriptures, Lord, the Scriptures are just... They're words on a page, but through your Holy Spirit, they're able to be impressed on our hearts, Lord, and we can realize our position in you and your power in us. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much that you died for us, that you've redeemed us, that you've sealed us, that you've filled us with your Holy Spirit, and that this morning we have everything we need to remain faithful, to have a relationship with you, to worship you wholeheartedly, and to walk in victory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you help us to unpack it and understand it. We thank you for revelation this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. 
So one thing about my oldest boy, Eli, for those of you who have seen him here at church, is that he's always had this natural kind of sort of fearlessness. And, uh, and, and at some point I realized that at least a little bit of his fearlessness was based on the fact or connected to his faith in the fact that no matter what, his dad would catch him. And I, it made me think of, of one specific time when we were visiting some friends and we were kind of hanging out. It was, I think it was a Sunday afternoon and these friends of ours had just built a brand new swimming pool and it didn't have a net on it yet or a fence around it. Um, and we actually went over there to see this pool that they had built. And, um, and at one point, this friend of mine and I, we were standing on one side of the garden. We were about 10, 15 meters away from the pool and Eli was kind of walking around looking in the plants. He was, he was very young. He was maybe 18 months old or somewhere around there. And he walked over to the edge of the pool and looked into the swimming pool and then looked over at me. And so I kind of caught his eye and I was too far away to do anything in, in an instant. But what I said was, Eli, don't do it. Eli, don't do it. And he literally smiled and while looking at me, stepped straight into the pool. And he sank like a rock. That was the last I saw of him. He just disappeared. There, was no, there wasn't even a splash. It was just like one of those Olympic divers, and there's a little bubble, and they're gone. And um, obviously, I ran over to him and grabbed his hand and, and, and pulled him out. And, um, and he was totally chuffed with himself. He didn't cry. He thought it was amazing. He thought he had a great swim and, uh, and managed to, to at least get a little bit of a dip on that summer Sunday afternoon. Um, but the question that this brought up to me was how differently would we live and how differently would we give and how differently would we love if we truly believed that the same power of God that pulls the stars out of the sky and melts the mountains like wax and shifts the islands from their place, if that same power of God is the self-same power that rescues us that pulls us out of our situations, that shows up in our moments of difficulty, that comforts us when we hurt. How different would our lives be if we trusted that the God who can send every star out of the sky and can put all things right in the ultimate sense can also put things right in your life? How much differently would we walk in our relationship with Him and in relationship to the difficulties of this life? It's the same power that sustains us and protects us. How differently would we live and how much more would we trust God when we realize we are not just servants of God? We're not just acquaintances of God. We're not just people that go out to do things for God or come to church for God, but we belong to God that He is our Father. He proved that. He didn't just say it, but when our greatest need was salvation, He sent His Son to die for you. And this really puts the power of God in context. When you know the love of God, I heard somebody say that, that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us is the difference between the fear of the Lord and being afraid of God. Do you understand the difference there? When you know God's heart, you can have reverential fear and honor and respect for Him without being afraid of Him because He is good. To echo the words of C.S. Lewis, 
He's definitely not safe. He's never safe. God is never safe, but he's always good. He's the king, and he is good. And it puts the power of God in, in such context for us, and it's so important and so awesome to remember that as we read through the book of Revelation. Here in Revelation 7, and, and I'm kind of going to do this because there's so much heart in it that I'd like to express, but then there's also some, some of the things that people go, but what are those four angels doing at the corners of the earth? You know, people are like, can we come back to that for a moment? And so I'll be kind of oscillating between the two. But here in Revelation 7, the four angels at the four corners of the earth, people are like, are there corners in the earth? Like, like where are the corners? I thought it was round, you know? <laughs> like, and people have definitely used that incorrectly um, in the past in history and trying to decide how the earth was shaped. But in essence, this is just simply prophetic language. And the four corners essentially just mean encompassing the entire earth. It's not talking about an actual corner. It's a literary device to say, it's prophetic imagery to say that, that it encompasses the entire earth. And there are these four angels that are to bring judgment and destruction even to the natural world as these seals and later on the trumpets and later on the bowls begin to be poured out on the earth. These, these angels that are standing at the four corners ready to enact God's will of judgment across the earth, they are told to wait. And there's this dramatic pause, almost like we saw in Revelation 5, when all of heaven remains silent just to see the revealing of the Lamb. It's now all of heaven remains silent to see the revealing of the sons of God. The Bible says, it tells us that all of the creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God, and it's talking about this moment here. So there's a holding back until the sons and daughters of God are revealed. And an angel arises with a seal in his hand. Now this is again what in ancient times would be um, a mold that would have the signal of the king imprinted on it. And when that seal was placed onto an object, it carried the authority of the king and the protection of the king. And anybody who messed with it would be in trouble. And so we see that this angel arises and he says, don't harm the earth until the servants of God have been sealed. And, the, and, and we know that there were seals on the scroll that Jesus is busy dismantling in this vision. And those seals are seals of authority, like when a letter was sent in antiquity, when a letter was sent and it had the king's seal on it, only the one with the correct authority could break that seal to open it. And that's what's happening there. But this is different. This is a seal of ownership. This is a seal that says, this imprint lets everybody know that this belongs, this person or this thing belongs to the king, belongs to the creator. It's a seal of protection, and it's mentioned many times in Scripture um, how people were sealed and in that way protected from judgment, protected from wrath, protected from harm. This happened all the way through the history of Israel and through the prophets. Um, it's a well-known biblical idea of these are sealed. It belongs to God. You cannot touch it. In Ephesians 1 verse 13, we see that imagery and that thought being, being brought through into the New Testament. And in 1 verse 13, it says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. So through faith, you were sealed. There's a sealing that has gone onto your life. You were sealed with what? With the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it. That's the inheritance we're going to look at now in heaven. To the praise of His glory. So you have been sealed. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, the Spirit of God witnesses to our spirits that we are His children. That's how you know that, that you are a child of God when you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Our faith in the gospel is what brings this imprint, and the deposit that we have is the deposit of the Holy Spirit that seals us as God's children for an inheritance that we experience some of here on earth, but we'll see all of it when we're in heaven. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. We belong to Him. So this angel speaks about how the servants of God are to be sealed with a seal on their foreheads. There's a seal on their foreheads. If you could see into the Spirit this morning and could look over at the person next to you, you wouldn't just see their face, you wouldn't just see them as a person, but you would actually be able to see that if your faith is in Jesus, that you are marked with the seal of God on your head this morning. And I imagine how if you were to walk around in the city, and obviously we don't see that, but whenever a demonic force wants to come against your life, the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise a standard against him. And I imagine how many of us are worried, is the devil going to get me? Is he going to overcome me? Am I going to be defeated? Is my business going to crash and, and burn? Am I going to go through this hardship? Will, will I experience you know, all these difficult things? And, and, is, and, and I've seen so many people be petrified of the power of the enemy. And you'll only be petrified of the power of the enemy if you don't know that you've been sealed by the seal of the king. There is protection over your life. And if we could see into the spirit this morning, you would see that. There is authority, there is a standard, there is a seal, and it prevents the enemy from overcoming or overwhelming your life. Revelation 14 actually tells us what the seal says, and this is so beautiful. Revelation 14.1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. What is the seal that's been imprinted into your soul and into your spirit man or spirit woman? What is it that, that is written on us? If we could see, what would it say? It would say, Jesus Christ. The seal of the Lamb, the name of Jesus, the name of the Father imprinted on us. We are sealed as, as children of God, as the possession of God, as the object of His affection as the ones to, to carry and represent His will and purpose on the earth. Church, we need to stop seeing ourselves as just poor, struggling, homeless, vagabonds. Oh, shame, maybe God will do something for me at some point. You've been sealed as the possession of the King, His children. Revelation 7 verse 4 goes on to say, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. And he goes on, he mentions 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. And there is a lot of discussion as to who the, the 144,000 are. 
and this has actually led rise to um, one of the strongest kind of doctrines of a sect um, that may have knocked on your door before and said, hey, can I tell you, 144,000 are going to get into heaven. And I'm just like, if 144,000 are going and that's all, then why are you going door to door with that message? You know, like I would tell as little people as possible to make sure that I get to be one of those. But let's clarify who the 144,000 are. There's two main positions doctrinally in the field of systematic theology called eschatology. And there's two main positions that have ideas about who this 144,000 are. And one belief, one uh, main trend of belief in what is called dispensationalism is the idea that before the seventh seal breaks, there's what people call the start of the great tribulation. So with the breaking of the sixth seal and the, the mountains and the, and the islands and the, the stars falling from the sky and the sky being rolled up like a scroll, it enters into a period which biblically is known as the Great Tribulation. And one group of Christians believe that before this Great Tribulation happens, there is going to be what is known as the rapture. The word rapture comes from an, an old Latin word which means to snatch or to catch away. In fact, you get the word raptor, like a bird of prey. The reason why it's called a raptor is because of how it hunts, because it swoops down and it snatches and it goes. And so the rapture is the same concept. There are, there are people that from the scriptures have believed, and I'll show you some of the, the scriptures that, that have produced that, for, that doctrine, but they believe that before the great tribulation comes, because God hasn't appointed his people to wrath, to suffer that wrath, that he will swoop down, and in a moment we will meet him in the sky, and the rapture will take place, and the church will ultimately be removed from the earth. Right? You may have heard that. In Matthew 24, verse 39, we read Matthew 24 uh, last week, but um, it says this, it says, this is the way, this is Jesus speaking, that the coming of the Son of Man will be. He says, then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. And so there is much debate around this, and will there be a rapture, won't there be a rapture, um, but in, in the, the idea in this first main position is that the church will be caught away, and then will be taken into heaven, and not endure the hardships of the tribulation that follow after that. In context of that, they believe that the 144,000, since it mentioned them in those different tribes, are then Jewish believers that recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and how they are then the ones who become the church of the tribulation. So it's like God leaves a remnant behind in order to be his witnesses throughout the tribulation. So he, he removes the main body of the church, but leaves 144,000 behind, having been sealed, that they can't be harmed like the rest of humanity or judged because they are believers, but they will be the church in the tribulation. And this is connected to a prophecy in Daniel 9, and it kind of gets deep here with prophetic, it gets a bit technical, but, but to give you an overview idea is that in Daniel 9, there is a prophecy about the 70 weeks that God has given to the nation of Israel to be his witnesses. And it has a lot of detail there, you can go and read it. But God has given Israel 70 weeks, but it breaks it up like this. It first says that there will be seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then a 70th week. And that's kind of how it breaks it up. And it gives timelines. 
So it tells you the seven weeks are from this king until this time, and then from that time to the time of the anointed one, when the anointed one will be cut off, is 62 weeks. And if you work out the timelines and also look at prophetic language and symbolism in the Bible, each week symbolizes seven years. And so if you go to the time of Jesus, you see that until Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem, the nation of Israel had 69 weeks to be witnesses of God. And now the church is the witness of God. But what those who believe in dispensationalism and believe in the 70th week of Daniel say that that final seven years is the time of the tribulation. And that is how they calculate that the tribulation will be seven years long. Does that make sense? So the 70th week of Daniel, if you've ever heard about it, that's what it refers to. And it ends like this in Daniel 9.27. It talks about kind of an antichrist or an anti-messiah that will arise at that time. And it says this, it says, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. So for seven years, he'll make a covenant. And the idea here is is that the anti-Messiah will create a one-world government and finally bring peace between Judaism and Islam, reinstitute the sacrifices in the temple, and sign a treaty to say that there is now one global political party, a global government with one ruler over it all, and peace on earth, which is, you know, what every pageant contestant has ever longed for, Okay world peace. So it says that he will make a covenant for one week, for seven years, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to a sacrifice, or stop to sacrifice an offering, and the abomination of desolation, which we know has referred to the destruction of the temple. So the temple will be rebuilt and then destroyed again, and it will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. And there's so many different theologies and theories uh, around that. But in essence, what that boils down to is that those who believe in dispensationalism have said that for three and a half years, there will be peace during the tribulation, and then comes a true great tribulation for three and a half years. But at that three and a half year point, God will remove the church and just leave the 144,000 witnesses behind. And that would be known as a mid-tribulation rapture. So you've got mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib, like all these ideas and positions that we're not going to get into because it's not the heart of Revelation. And so, you know, there's some things we're just going to have to wait to find out. But that's the idea that these 144,000 are those that, are, that will be the church in the tribulation, and they will be Jewish believers that will turn to Jesus. The second theology, which is a lot more popular uh, amongst theologians in actual fact, is that the church will not be raptured, but will exist throughout the tribulation. They will continue through the tribulation, those that are still alive at that time, and their entrance into heaven is simply as they are put to death through persecution. I spoke about it, I think, last week, that 8,000 Christians die annually as a result of persecution on their Christianity. It's still the most persecuted faith on the planet. And there are some countries where it is completely illegal and punishable by death to be a Christian. And there's many organizations that monitor that and do global watches and look out for these persecution and try to support those Christians. Um, but, but this is something that will intensify, and we're already seeing it as our world moves to a post-Christian position. We're going beyond Christianity. And here in Africa, we're blessed because we're quite 
we're probably 20 years behind what's happening in other nations. Europe and, and, and the U.S., kind of the centers of the West, are way beyond Christianity, where the, you can tolerate, you can be almost anything. You can think that you are a donkey and want to marry a cat, and that's fine. But call yourself a Christian, and you'll be outlawed. You'll be ridiculed. Then you've got a psychological problem. You've got a pathological problem if you're a Christian and believe in a God, but if you want to identify as a donkey, no, you're good. And so this is already happening in our world. But the second idea then says that the 144,000 is ultimately the 12 tribes of Israel multiplied, squared, multiplied by 12, so 12 times 12, 144, then multiplied by 1,000. So it's 12 squared and multiplied by 1,000, ultimately saying it's just a complete number. It's, it's just a symbol for the complete number of believers. And the way that we know that that was an image that John was trying to create is because, first of all, I don't know if you noticed, but Reuben was the firstborn son of Israel, but Judah went to the top of the list. Judah's mentioned first. And Judah's mentioned first, that's obviously the tribe from which Jesus came. Dan is missing. Dan's not on the list. And that's because in the Hebrew belief um, from ancient times, they believed that the Antichrist or the anti-Messiah would come forth from the tribe of Dan, and so they're like, no, let's leave that one out completely. And then Manasseh is included. Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph and weren't on the original list of 12, and so Manasseh's back. Why is Manasseh there? What happened to Ephraim, or why are we playing favorites here? And we can see that there's a, there's a technique to just include 12 tribes and then multiply them by 12, or double them and multiply them by a thousand. And so it symbolizes a comp the number is complete. These then are not natural Jews. They're not Jews of natural descent, but spiritual Israel. And we don't have time for that this morning to go into that, but the idea is that if you are in Christ, the Scripture says, you are Abraham's seed. In other words, the true descendants of Abraham are not those that are the descendants of Abraham naturally, but he was the father of faith. So anybody who has faith in Christ and has been counted towards them as righteousness are then therefore true Israel. And so these 144,000 purely symbolize the church. And we see something similar happening to what happened in Revelation 5 when John heard Behold, the elder tapped him on the shoulder and said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. So that's what he hears. Then he turns, and what does he see? The lamb as though it had been slain. So he hears one thing, it's described as one thing, but he turns and sees another thing. And we see the same thing happening here in Revelation 7 verse 9. So he hears 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. He turns, and what does he see? Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around their elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we hear 144,000, the complete number, but we turn and we see a great multitude before the throne, all worshiping Him from every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the earth, people that have been redeemed. Here's the good thing. Whether we're raptured or whether we die through persecution, 
we all end up in that multitude. That's the point. The rest you can get technical about and argue about, but the point is the result is the same. Heaven is our home. Heaven is our home. Heaven is our true home, our true belonging. And the Scriptures call for us to understand this so that we don't put all of our stock in earthly pursuits. In essence, here on earth, we are pilgrims, we are journeymen, we are ambassadors in a foreign land, but heaven is our home. And we eagerly await this. We eagerly await heaven. The Bible says that we groan, our bodies groan for this new habitation. Even Paul says, hey, I would love to leave you all right here and just go be with Jesus. See, if you have the right perspective on heaven, death has no more power over you. It doesn't even threaten you because you're not living for this earth. To depart and be with Jesus is far better, Paul says. I'll go right now if I could. But for your sake, I'll stay behind. I'll run the race and I'll finish it because I still have something that God wants for me to do on this earth. But death doesn't threaten us. It has no power over us because Jesus defeated death. And this is why Christians are such a peculiar people. We love the people of this world. We love being here in the city of Joburg. We love the mission that God has given us. But we don't belong to it. We're free from it. We're not owned by it. We don't pursue what others pursue. The Bible says that the God of this age has blinded people from knowing the truth. The enemy has literally not so much pulled the wool over the world's eyes as much as he has pulled the world over their eyes. So that all they can see is the things that they can have in this finite reality as opposed to living for eternity. C.S. Lewis wrote, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. It's taking up stock in your lives. He also said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were made for another place. So we're called to live in expectation of heaven. And I actually looked up the dictionary definition of heaven and tried to see some of, some of the other words and how the world would, would define it. And it actually says, those that enter a special reward because of their good deeds. That's the definition of our world, of heaven. It's the place you go to when you've been really good. And that's not the Bible's definition of heaven. It's not good people that go to heaven. It's forgiven people that go to heaven. It's the people that have received the grace of God. That's the only entrance that we have. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And it's only by His grace that we are saved and given eternal life. Listen to these verses in the Old and New Testaments about heaven. This is our expectation. This is where we're going to stand. Philippians 3.20 says, We are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for Him to return as our Savior. He will take these weak mortal bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same mighty power, there's the hope, that He will use to conquer everything, everywhere. Job 19.25, thousands of years ago, I know that my Redeemer lives and that He will stand upon the earth at last and after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see Him for myself. Yes, I will see Him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. Job, 
I'll see my Redeemer in my new heavenly body. John 14, verse 2, There are many rooms in my Father's home, Jesus says, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would tell you plainly, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Colossians 3, verse 2, Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here on earth, for you died when Christ died, and your real life, your real life, your real life, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, when He returns, the second coming of Jesus, you will share in all His glory. 1 Peter 1.3, we live with a wonderful expectation. How many of you have stopped experiencing expectation in your life? You're like, no, that's too disappointing. How beautiful is an expectation that you can trust? It's going to come to pass. We live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. For God has reserved a priceless inheritance for His children. It is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled. 2 Timothy 4.10, this world is not our home. We are looking forward to our city in heaven, which is yet to come. Imagine if we could grasp that concept for a moment. We spend so much time making a place for ourselves, a name for ourselves here on earth. It's not even your home. Your home is in heaven. There's an expectation and excitement here. Finally, in Revelation 7 verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? So asks John the question. And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Beautiful expectation. No more pain, no more hurt, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more scorching heat, the harshness of the realities of this world but we are sheltered for eternity in the refuge of heaven and in the presence of the Lamb. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. No more hunger, thirst, or scorching heat. I always think about the context. This was written in the Middle East when there were no aircons. <laughs> if you've been to the Middle East you'll understand why that is a big deal to them. Anything like, what are you talking about? There's going to be no heat? Okay, it's heaven, all right? No more heat, no more of the harsh realities. And Jesus comes and wipes away every tear. Behold, I make all things new. Final verse this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and verse 5 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, this, this body is described as a mere tent, it's a temporal dwelling, if this earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us 
the Spirit as a guarantee. How beautiful is it once again? Like, how do I know heaven is real? How do I know I'm going to be in the multitude? How do I know I'm going to be able to worship God? How do I know I'm going to experience His comfort and His joy? And, and how do I know He's going to wipe away every tear? You know how? You have the Holy Spirit already as a guarantee. It's like a, a deposit to say, this is definitely yours. And so we can begin to experience a measure of eternity and that comfort and that peace and that joy within ourselves because the Holy Spirit lives within us. The Holy Spirit is known as the Comforter with a capital C. He comforts us. The shelter of the Almighty, the shadow of the Almighty. He's known as the Protector. And how many people have written throughout Scripture that His presence has the ability to satisfy us. So when we stand here together on a, on a Sunday morning and we worship corporately, just like we will in heaven one day, this is just the pre-show. We'll all worship together for eternity. And in that moment, we're going to experience absolute peace, absolute joy, absolute healing of every hurt we've ever experienced. And we're going to worship more wholeheartedly than we ever have. But we get to taste all of those things already today. The peace of God that transcends all understanding has already entered your life through the Holy Spirit. The healing of God, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the protection of God. We get to live in this world, but not satisfied by the world, because the God of heaven lives inside of us. What is the church then but an outpost of heaven? We're just a small version of heaven. People from every tribe, every language, every tongue, all come together to focus on our Father, and the greatness of His love and the greatness of His majesty, to give Him glory, to enjoy His grace, to be sheltered by His presence. That's why we have a sign out there that says, this is home, because heaven is our home. The power of God works in His church through His church to affect this world because we have a time given to us and a mission given to us to share the good news of God's love before the final seal is broken. And that's the opportunity that we have as the church. I'm hoping this morning that through this, you understand that God is all powerful, but His power is for you. He's used every bit of His power to show you how much He loves you. He put us together as a community he strengthens us, sustains us, protects us, upholds us, comforts us through the difficulties of this world and gives us the ability to keep going, to keep moving, to keep trusting until we all stand together in heaven. If you don't like the person sitting next to you this morning, over the next couple of weeks, you better get to like them because they're going to be with you forever in heaven forever it's going to be an amazing time we have a beautiful expectation church expect God to work in your life expect him to work through your life and hunger for your home that is heaven amen amen why don't we stand this morning